thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I'm going to continue where I left off last week, talking about the necessity of putting a biblical worldview, in other words, the understanding of particular subjects and whether they align with the law of God or the truth of God's word, into a proper cosmology. And I hope by the end of the day to get to what I promised last week, the one law that Christians must know that all of their lives must be ordered according to in the cosmology in which we live and in which we now find ourselves. And that will affect our politics. The reason I'm talking about this subject is because I've seen so much going on in the area of law and government and politics between uh, big evangelicalism on the one side and the Christian right, some within the Christian nationalist kind of movement that um, I find problematic because I'm not sure that those two extremes understand the nature of the cosmos in which we are now living. And the reason this is important is not because I say it is, but because I go back to the passage of Scripture found in First Chronicles 12.32 that describes the sons of Iskar as those who had the understanding of the times to know what Israel was to do. Now, you'll find books that talk about understanding the times, and they speak in terms of the biblical worldview I've previously described of being able to distinguish between the biblical consistency um, and, and harmony with the law of God between, say, capitalism and socialism, between public education and homeschool education or school choice, or between homeopathic medicines and and um, pharmaceutical medications and all kinds of things. We can make everything uh, a, a matter of a biblical morality or ethic that one is the better than the other. But all of that has to be placed in an understanding of the times so we would know what to do that is wise to change the times in which we live. And I think all Christians that I know want to change the times. They either want to change the times because they've enamored by Black Lives Matters and and fascism and all kinds of other things, uh, social gospel, or they want to change the times because they see us living in degeneracy. But we have to understand that where God has made an impossibility of something, it is vain for us to try to do it. So we have to understand the times in which we live in order that we would know what is the right thing to do. Now, towards that end, let me give you this bit of advice from the book I've mentioned. And I'm going to read a few excerpts from it today before I get to the scripture passages that 
that are relevant and pertain to it, but it's Carl Becker's book, The Heavenly City of the 18th Century Philosophers. And the reason I'm quoting it is because he is telling Christians, if they'll read the book, what the times are in which they live, which is needful and necessary if we're going to be sons of Issachar. Now, here's what he says. We now live in an age in which he can make this kind of statement. Whether arguments command assent or not, which we have to understand this, right? If we're going to be sons of Issachar, to understand the the time in which we live as to whether what we say uh, will command some kind of assent or agreement or disagreement. And he says, whether the argument commands assent or not depends less upon the logic that conveys them than upon the climate of opinion in which the arguments hope to be sustained. Okay, now that should help us understand why those of us who are Christians don't get it, that that some people don't understand that that a person with a certain anatomy and biological characteristics is a man and not a woman and and the two can never be the same, right? We just don't get it. And that's what he's saying. We live in a climate of opinion in which some things that you and I might think are reasonable just no longer are reasonable by those who hold the positions of influence and authority in our culture. And we're struggling with that, right? Now, he goes on to say that prior to the present time, and he's writing in the 1900s, early 1900s, he says existence was regarded by the medieval man as a cosmic drama composed by the master dramatists according to a central theme and own a rational plan. Now he goes on. And he explains this further. As a consequence of this belief, he said, theology related and expounded the history of the world. In other words, our knowledge of God explained the nature of the cosmos, its history, its purpose, its beginning, its formal cause, and its telos, its end, its final cause. Philosophy was the science that rationalized and reconciled nature and history. In other words, it's how we pull together these facts in light of our theology to understand it. Logic provided both theology and philosophy with an adequate methodology. And that's the world in which the medieval person, and I would submit up until the work of the 18th century philosophers, in other words, into the 17th century, held sway in the West, which is, of course, our primary concern because we're products of and part of the Western civilization and Western legal tradition. But he notes that everything has changed. And what he says, consistent with the idea that the climate of opinion determines whether we can assent or dissent from a particular uh, assertion, he says, with the best will in the world. In other words, I'm going to will this. It is quite impossible for us, referring to the people of the day, early 1900s, 
to conceive of existence as a divinely ordered drama, the beginning and end of which is known, the significance of which has once for all been revealed. In other words, we can try our best, but it just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense that we don't live in a climate of opinion in which we can say, oh, yeah, I, I get this. In the beginning is God, and everything is from him and through him and to him, and we'll turn to him. And, and everything was pointed to a once-for-all revelation, the revelation of the mystery of God, the glory of God in the face of Christ, revealed in Christ. Uh, no, man, uh, that... That just doesn't make sense anymore, you see. He continues on. So he makes this now statement about man, and you'll see the parallel to Scripture here. What is man that the electrons should be mindful of him? Man is but a foundling in the cosmos, abandoned by the forces that created him. Unparented, unassisted, and undirected by omniscience or benevolent authority, he must fend for himself and with the aid of his own limited intelligence, find his way about in an indifferent world. Such is the world pattern, in other words, the cosmology, that determines the character and direction of modern thinking. So see, they have a cosmology, and that's the cosmology in which we now live that we must understand if we're going to know what we should do. Now, he makes this very interesting observation about this present cosmology or world pattern. The pattern has been a long time in weaving. It has taken eight centuries to replace the conception of existence as divinely composed, purposeful drama by the conception of existence as a blindly running flux of disintegrating energy. But there are signs that the substitution is now fully accomplished. And if that could be written in the early 1900s, before the 1950s, I can't remember exactly when this book was written, it is certainly true today. It's been fully substituted. The medieval cosmology of a divinely ordered drama whose beginning and end is known and pointed to something specific is long, long, long gone. And if we don't understand that, we won't understand our times and we won't understand what to do. And it's not just that this is true in America. He also says this. This philosophical empire of the 18th century philosophers that took hundreds of years to substitute its cosmology, its world pattern for that of the medieval period of the Christian cosmology is now, quote, an international domain of which France was but the mother country and Paris the capital. Go where you like, England, Holland, Italy, Spain, America, everywhere you meet them. In other words, these kinds of thinkers of this new cosmology. They're speaking the same language and sustained by the same climate of opinion. They are of all countries and of none, having openly declared their allegiance to mankind. They are citizens of the world, the emancipated ones, looking out upon a universe seemingly brand new, because so freshly flooded with light.
Now, what was this light? He describes that as well by pointing to John Locke as a key figure. And the number of Christians that I see referencing John Locke as the basis for government and understanding the world should be appalling when you hear what Becker says that John Locke opened the door to this new cosmology. Listen to what Becker writes. Locke's great title to glory is that, quote, he made it possible for the 18th century to believe with a clear conscience what it wanted to believe, namely, that since man and the mind of man were shaped by that nature which God had created, it was possible for men, by the use of their natural faculties, to bring their ideas and their conduct and hence the institutions by which they lived into harmony with the universal natural order. With what simple faith the Age of Enlightenment welcomed this doctrine. With what sublime courage it embraced the offered opportunity to refashion the outward world of human institutions according to, now listen to this phrase carefully and think about where you've heard it, according to the laws of nature and of nature's God. Thomas Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence. See, we can put a Christian gloss on those words in our Declaration of Independence, and some people would have understood it as we did, but we fail to understand that those words were also spoken into an age in which the Enlightenment was beginning to flourish, was beginning to capture the ideas of men and John Locke. You get it? So a Jefferson who really denies everything except Jesus being a moral tutor, could write those words with a clear conscience because it was with man's intellect. Everything was self-evident. Nothing had to be revealed. And the Christian position is that we can know nothing of this universe and nothing of God unless it is revealed. Now, that's not limited to revealed as in special revelation, but also nature. But the problem is man doesn't understand the picture that nature is painting. The imagery of God, the, the metaphor of God that it is revealing to us because of what I'm next going to get to that we have to appreciate that is the biblical climate of opinion that leads to the one law by which we need to live and do our politics that I think we've overlooked. And here's where I want to start with the biblical analysis of the climate of opinion in which we live that produced the climate of opinion that Becker just described. And we're going to start in Romans 7, verses 8 through 10. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment. In other words, the commandment, obey these and live. Produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now we're going to come back to what that means in just a moment. and and use something that John Owen said in his book, The Dominion of Sin and Grace, which you can find at monergism.com. 
But he says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. Again, what is he talking about there? But when the commandment came, do this and live. Don't do this, actually, is the way it the commands relative to uh, our relationships to others are worded. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. He says, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. In other words, and this is what John Owen says, there is a state of life in this world wherein sin hath dominion over the soul, acting itself presumptuously, wherewith integrity and freedom from condemning guilt are inconsistent. What he's saying is we can live without guilt until the law really brings its commandment to us. Okay? So look at Psalm 19.13, which Owen also uses in explaining this dominion of sin under which all men now live after the fall. The psalmist writes, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. See, that's just what the Apostle Paul was saying, is that we can presume that we're just doing fine. There's a way that looks right in the eyes of every man, and he just doesn't even see that there's anything wrong with it. That's the climate in which we live. He says, let them not have dominion over me. So, again, the psalmist is echoing what the Apostle Paul is writing in Romans 7, 8 through 10. Okay? So, when the law comes to us, it it provokes all manner of evil desire. So when we bring the law of God into this culture, it provokes all manner of evil desire. It does not bring about in itself, in its presentation, in its declaration, uh, oh, wow, this is great stuff. I, I, I really like this. I want to live according to this law of God. He says, no, because there's sin there that has not been defeated and its dominion still exists. And so, in Romans 6.14, the Apostle Paul says this. It's very important. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Now, this is the verse that he expounds for multiple pages in the book I just referenced. John Owen, I mean. But notice, notice this. Law has a dominion. It has an authority. It has a, a kingdom, we might say, right? And we need to recognize that. And we need to know two things about its dominion. And again, what I'm doing here is not just a study of Bible verses in some abstract sense. I'm trying to help us understand the nature of the cosmos in which we live so that we can appreciate what the Enlightenment philosophers were doing that has brought us to the place in which we now exist. See, they denied all of this divine cosmological framing of the world and thought by their minds, having been created by God, well, we can just figure it all out by ourselves and, and do it the right way. Create the heavenly city. Create the utopia that Thomas More talked about centuries before.
So here are the two things we need to recognize about the dominion of sin. To the saved, to the believer, the Apostle Paul, in saying, it shall not have dominion over us, in the words of John Owen, says, he grants that it may or doth contend for it. In other words, it, sin will contend for dominion over you. But only it shall not have success. It shall not prevail. Because the dominion of sin and the conviction of sin by the law has been broken by the power of God. And therefore, not having dominion over us is not a work I do, but what God has done. And you see, I read that as the legalist. Okay, I'm not supposed to have, let sin have dominion over me. <clears throat> Grip my teeth. He says, no, 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 don't you understand? God has already broken the dominion of sin. He's removed you out from under that law of condemnation and death and, and, and transferred you into his kingdom. Colossians 1.13, a kingdom of light as opposed to the kingdom of darkness that you are in. Praise God, you've been delivered. Now notice too how the apostle Paul describes the work of the law as compared to the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2, we have to remember, there is a law of Christ. The Bible talks a lot about a lot of different laws, and to be honest, I didn't get or understand them because I didn't understand the nature of the cosmos. And Christ is the gospel. He, not the law, is the good news. The law of Christ. The gospel is Christ. Because Christ is the telos. He is the end, the completion, the fulfillment, the embodiment of the law and what the law was pointing to. Again, they are citing Romans 10.4. Christ is the end, the telos of the law. Now, to the unsaved, to the unregenerate, to the unconverted, this is what the law is. This is how the law works in the cosmos in which we now live. The work of the law, he says in Romans 2.15, is written in their hearts. It's written in everybody's heart. But here's what it does. Their conscience bears witness and their thoughts either accuse or excuse them. So they either feel guilty and they don't know what to do with their guilt. So they go realter their bodies, they go kill their babies, they uh, drown their sorrows in alcohol or some other thing that we can be addicted to, which can be just anything, including church work. Uh, and and he says, or, or it excuses them, which is what we were talking about before, presumptuously. There isn't any law over me. I'm free to do as I please. This isn't sinful as long as I'm happy, as long as it suits me, as long as it pleases me, as long as I'm thinking it's making it better. You see, that's how the work of the law written in the hearts actually operates. Then he says this in 2 Corinthians 3, 7. These are hard words, but listen to them. He refers to the law as the ministry of death. So think back to what was said in Romans chapter 7. 
when the law came, when all of a sudden I realized there is a law out there, he says, you know, my thoughts start, as he just said, excuse me, made me feel guilty. And uh, what was intended to, to, to be an instrument of life, well, gosh, it wound up producing death in me. So the law to the unregenerate person has a ministry of death. And here's what's so important that I need to say to my friends on the Christian right, to some of my theonomic friends, law never brings life. Only Jesus Christ brings life. Life comes from God. And God did not, in the words of Galatians 3.21, give us a law that gave life. Notice what he says. Is the law against the promises of God? The promises of God that he would bless his people, that he would prosper his people, that he would bring them to a, a greater state of glory from glory to glory? He says, certainly not. For if there had been a law given that could give life, well, righteousness would have been by the law. We're not going to get righteousness by law. We're not going to get righteousness by anything we enact at the General Assembly as if the law will produce righteousness. Now, as we have righteous laws, God honors his law and is faithful to his law, and he brings about righteousness. But the law does not have life in it. And to the unregenerate person, it has a ministry of death and condemnation in accusing them or excusing them. Now, here is something that's important, though, to understand about those verses in 2 Corinthians 3. He also says this, in comparison to this law being a minister of death and a ministry of condemnation, he says, would not the ministry of the Spirit, this is verse 8, not be more glorious than that which, in effect, was producing death in us. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. And in verse 9, he says that the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory than the ministry of the law. And he refers to the law, though, for the Christian as having glory. In verse 7, he says, the law had a glory that was passing away. And he says, so if, if that which was passing away for the believer, not for the non-believer, if that had glory, he says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Comparatively, speaking, even for the Christian, the law was a ministry of condemnation, of death. And here, though, is how it was glorious. And we find this in Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. The word there is shut up under the law. We were held captive under the law. But notice that this is a protective captivity. And that is a different understanding of how the law is. 
and the state of the unbeliever who is, using the same word, shut up to disobedience. We find that in Romans uh, 10, I think it's 32, and also in um, Galatians. So you see, we were shut up prior to Christ bringing life to disobedience. We were under the wrath of God. We hated the law of God. We were hostile to the law of God. We didn't love the law of God. We didn't want the law of God. And any time that anybody tried to bring the law of God to us, all it did was produce evil and more sin. So we see a transgender person now going out and shooting a bunch of school-age children at a Christian school, interestingly, by the name Covenant. Because I think we've lost the concept of the covenant of God. But for the Christian, though, this law was keeping us in a protective custody. It was exposing to us, as Paul said, our sin. And we knew our sin. So our sin was always before us, as the psalmist wrote. And we knew that apart from God, apart from faith, there was no salvation. And that's where we come to the one law we have to understand if we're going to live and move and have our being in an effective, fruitful, enduring way in the cosmos in which we now live that has lost the medieval understanding of the cosmos that once existed. And here it is, Romans 3.27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? What is he saying there? He's saying, oh, well, boasting's excluded because we realize we can't keep all the works of God. We fall short of the glory of God. That's what excludes our boasting. But notice he says, no, that's not it. It's but by the law of faith. The law of faith is what excludes all boasting. Because faith itself is the gift of God. There is nothing about which we can boast. Even our love of the law or our desire to keep the law or even to live somewhat consistent with the law. It is all of faith and all of Christ and thus the righteous shall live by faith. And next week, we're going to talk about how living by the law of faith is, or in my opinion, is not reflected in the way we do politics. And I hope you'll join me for next week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, Please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.